Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 2, 17 through 3, 1, and 4, 14 through 16. This is the word of God. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might be become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sin of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are also being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who are share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Chapter 4. Since then we have a high, great priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, for one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. In standing while we pray. Father, we're thankful for your word, the scriptures that we get to discuss, even familiar passages. May they enrich us more, drive us more to appreciate and love our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The last time I saw her, she was a little girl, long before the decisions of teenage years can really wreck your life. She's a teen now, and it was a mutual friend that updated me on some of the unfortunate turns in her life. A bad connection online, an attempt to run away, not just once, but twice. And so she's a few hundred miles away from home right now, with people who love her, people that are trained to help restore a life that, in those teenage years, has made some pretty bad decisions. And back home are two parents with some younger kids waiting and praying and pushing through the fog that happens. It's only lifted when a wayward child comes home. She needs some confidence, I'm sure, that she can come home when the time comes. I suspect that the kind of confidence that she needs right now, in part, is, is a confidence that she's still loved, that, that her place is still secure, that, that her part, part of the family is still something that is unchanged, despite choices she's made and the circumstances that have unfolded. And I think she probably needs confidence that her welcome home is as Great as it's ever been. The preacher of Hebrews feeds our souls today. This time, not as much with some rich doctrine, with some looks back to the Old Testament and, and, and parsing some of the great truths of the Old Testament, reminding us of some of the high and lofty teaching that's there, not only about Jesus as our Savior, but, but the rest he brings Today seems to be a time when the preacher of Hebrews says it's also important to remind you of his heart for you. 
And that's what unfolds, and that's what we need, especially in life's wanderings. You know, wanderings can sometimes be little, and sometimes, like this young lady now growing up, can be pretty far. As we look at this passage of Hebrews chapter 4, the end of it, I want to point out that I'll find myself looking back quite a bit to the passage that that Nate read at the end of chapter 2. Because the two almost seems like they, they go hand in hand of this teaching about why Jesus had to walk this life in flesh and blood. Why, why he chose to live as he did. Why, why the role of a high priest means so much for us today. Even though it seems such a foreign concept to us. And I want to begin by just pointing out in, in verses 14 and 15... This, this phrase that is there, and I want to add another adjective to it. This phrase is right there in 14, a great high priest. But verse 15 will tell us not just that Jesus is a great high priest, but he's a sympathizing high priest. And I want to make sure that we understand this phrase, a sympathizing high priest, because by understanding it, by nailing down an appreciation as well as an understanding of what it means when he talks about the sympathizing great high priest, we will be able to then apply the two actions that are in our passage, two actions that call us to confidence. Confidence, first of all, in, in our faith, in what we believe, And then secondly, confidence in approaching God, whether we have wandered or not in approaching Him. Those are the two actions, but understanding the sympathizing high priest, great high priest, is key. And I want to do it by asking a few questions. I want to start by just asking the simple question, how is Jesus my great high priest? Well, first of all, a high priest is a priest. A priest was, was that class, that, that, that group of people in the Old Testament that if you wanted to put it in just a simple phrase, represented God's people to God. Now you've heard that before. Represents God's people to God. But a high priest, and there was only one allowed to be a high priest at, at any one time in the Old Testament, the high priest had a unique role that no one else on earth had. The high priest had this role, we've even referenced it already this morning in our earlier service, of once a year going through a very elaborate God-prescribed ritual to prepare for his duties once a year. A ritual that involved him washing, being bathed in a way that he was considered appropriate for this task, of putting on some exact garments, of entering an exact way into initially the tabernacle, the movable temple, if you want to say, in the Old Testament, and then later the temple. They both had this place that only the high priest could go. The high priest could only go there once a year, and the high priest could only go there for risk of his own life in the prescribed exact way that Leviticus talks about. Now I'll leave to others because this theme of Jesus as a high priest will will unfold for several more chapters. And, And no doubt some that will follow after me will help us look back at the Old Testament and some of the details of just what went on there. But in asking the question, why is Jesus a great high priest? 
I got to ask you, is, was, was a great high priest just a promotion in the Levite hierarchy, you know, the kind of the, the food chain or the organizational flow chart? You know, like when you see a company and they've got vice presidents and executive vice presidents. Oh, we got a new guy. Let's make him a senior executive vice president. It's like the list just goes on of titles. Now, a great high priest is saying he's a high priest who's great. He did the job that was done annually, and he did it in a way that for all of eternity, it will never be done again. It will never need to be done again. That's why he's called our great high priest. But I want to look back and see that, that, that in becoming a great high priest, he had to, like these verses we've just said, live in flesh and blood for a time. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 14. Because we, the children, share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things. He became human, it says. He became human to do two very clear things. To do something and to become something. The thing that he had to do was something we celebrate here every week when we pass the bread and some grape juice. To die on the cross, to secure our salvation. Verse 17, chapter 2 tells us that. And says in there that he made propitiation for the sins of the people. So in saying that, it's, it's pointing out that he came to do something. But have you ever wondered, maybe it's been a while, maybe you were just a young kid and it was Christmas time and you're at the service and you're thinking, couldn't... Couldn't Jesus have just kind of shown up mysteriously as an adult? I don't know. Enough time to do some teaching. You know, I mean, that's valuable. That's what what we look to, to to demonstrate an example of how you live a perfect life. Maybe, dare I say, a little bit like a Clint Eastweed, the man of no name, just kind of appears, comes on the scene as an adult, and accomplishes the work. Of not just teaching, but dying on the cross as a perfect human being. I, I, there's times I've just thought, why, why did he need to come and live life? And here it tells us. Because I, I'm struggling to figure out why he would need to live as he did for the years he did. To go through the things he did of just the mundane as well as the difficult. When dying on the cross was his purpose to save us from our sins. And here, in verse 17 of chapter 2, we're told that in becoming flesh and blood and living this life, it says he did it to become a merciful and faithful high priest. And we'll see also down in our section of chapter, chapter 4, verse 15, that it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, while living this earth, was tempted as we are. So, so here it is in Hebrews, this great high priest is a great high priest because he represented us in the work on the cross, a work that he finished, and, and now he, he represents us in heaven in his ongoing role as a great high priest, interceding for us in heaven, of, of carrying our needs to the Father and extending, as we'll see, grace and mercy to us. 
Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, said it this way, that, that when the cross was finished, having dispatched with his great work on earth for us, he hastened to heaven so that he could begin another. That another is not dying again in heaven, but interceding and representing us before God the Father in heaven. So my next question is this, what in my life does Jesus sympathize with? What is he... What, what arouses his compassion in my life? My failures? My sinning when I mess up? My bad decisions? My guilt? Yes, and more. It's more than frequent, maybe at least once a shift as an emergency room doc, that I admit somebody to the hospital. And, and if they are older... And, and they are more weak than usual, perhaps too weak to even head back home. Maybe it's time to transition from being in assisted living to the nursing home. For any number of reasons, one of the main reasons someone who's older gets put in the hospital is weakness. We actually put in, in, in on the chart the term asthenia. If you're just fascinated by medical codes, it's ICD-10, R53.1. Asthenia, it just means general weakness. And that's the word that is right here in the Greek. That he sympathizes, verse four, chapter 4, verse 15, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. Our weaknesses are broader than just our moral failings. Our weaknesses are... Or just weariness. Jesus experienced that. He stopped in Luke 4 to talk with a woman at the well because he was tired and he was thirsty. Our weaknesses extend to just patience growing thin, threadbare even, when little children are underfoot during those years. Our weaknesses are evident when we're experiencing the melancholy of just a day that's got us down. When is COVID going to end? Our weaknesses extend to when the depression is exhausting enough. You wonder if you're going to get out of bed that morning. It does involve weakness that finds us giving in to sin, no question. But our weaknesses, it's important to see. Jesus is talking to you not just when weakness has led to sin, but he's talking about just the weakness of life, the weariness, whatever it might be for you. You know, when I look at the, at the chart, I don't put diagnosis, admitting diagnosis, sinner. I might want to do that on my last shift when I have nothing to lose. But, but I put weakness because it reflects the broadness of what's going on, even though sometimes this word for sure means our moral failings, our sin. But let's make sure we realize he, he is sympathizing for us in more than just when weakness has led us into sin. He sympathizes when we're just tired. Whatever has led us to that. Well, how did temptation enable Jesus to sympathize with our weaknesses? Jesus' earthly years included temptation. We know that, not just from reading in Matthew 4 that he's out in the desert for 40 days, but no doubt, based on what we read here in the Scriptures, chapter 4, verse 15, that it says, He was one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, but was without sin. And so I ask you, how, how has his experience of temptation taught us? Well, 
We read in the end of chapter 2, he suffered when tempted. And then, here in our section, he was tempted but was without sin. He never gave in. How did that kind of temptation help? Suffering in temptation as well as never giving in. Those are... The second one makes more sense. We can't relate to it. We never give in to sin. We do bend into temptation. But this idea of suffering, I think it's worth exploring that. Philip Yancey said that, that when he wrote the book, The Jesus I Never Knew, talked about him studying the temptation, Jesus' temptation. And he said, it occurs to me that as I study those temptations of Jesus, one of the things that, that he was luring Jesus to do was to take the shortcut. He said it this way. As I reflect on Jesus' temptations, Satan was dangling before Jesus a speeded up way of accomplishing his mission. Well, think of just even the very temptations. Matthew, profound insight into the human body, says after 40 days he was hungry. And when Jesus came and, and, and Satan came to him, he says, turn these stones into bread. Well, Jesus basically decided that his father would determine mealtime and not him. That his father would be the one to appoint the end of a time of suffering. And he wasn't going to shortchange that by giving in to the devil's suggestion, why don't you just turn some of these stones to bread and get to eating? The devil took him to the highest part of the temple and looked out and says, hey, the scriptures actually actually say this, Jesus, say, um, command your angels concerning you. Jesus knew that he could command his angels in the Garden of Gethsemane. When they went, came to arrest him, he looks and says, you guys, you guys know I could call 12 legions of angels right now. Just to refresh your memory, that's 144,000 angels. I figure if one angel could take care of 185,000 men outside of Jerusalem in the Old Testament, 144,000 could do some damage. Well, Jesus knew they could come and minister to him, could rescue him from whether it was the hunger or the weariness or the dryness of his lips or whatever it might be. But Jesus determined to be on God's timetable and not to shortcut in his life any suffering or trial that would take away from him being as available and as prepared for your weakness and my weakness right now. In fact, it says at the end of, of, of Jesus' temptations, it actually says, the devil left him and the angels came and were ministering to him. God took care of him. But Jesus did not permit it to be any time short of God's appointed timetable. The message is not to not take pain medicine or to you know, stay in some suffering for us in some foolish way. We're just looking at Jesus' life and realizing his life is a pattern of living in a way that he was not going to shortcut anything, any trial or suffering in his life that would enable him to best Care for us today. The scriptures say it when, it's, when they say in, in, chapter, in, in the end of chapter 2 that he suffered in his temptation by choice. You know, even on the cross, Jesus could have sh- shortcut 
the temptation, the, the, the trial he was under. Remember when he first gets there, Mark says in chapter 15, they offered him some, some wine mixed with myrrh. They offered him that because that was at least a, a mild anesthetic, a mild pain reliever to try to get through his head. To try to get through what was ahead. That was just apparently a custom of, of the day. And what does it say? Jesus refused. And the next verse says, and they crucified him. Even in the pain that he was under, he chose not to take advantage of something as simple as some wine mixed with myrrh that might lessen some of the pain in his life. The aim is not to skip the epidural. <laughs> But the aim is to say, Jesus did not shortcut any pain or suffering for me. Well, it says in chapter 4, verse 15, in every respect, he has been tempted as we are, but was without sin. It's not just that, that his suffering and his choice to fully suffer in temptation has prepared him to be a better high priest, but the fact that he didn't give in to sin has prepared him to be a better high priest. You say, how, how, if he's perfect and he didn't give in to temptation, how, how can that be a help to me? How can he really relate to temptation in my life? We're doing a little bit of intermittent fasting in our household these days. No spiritual reasons. We're just trying to hold on to the little bit we have of our health as, as the life goes on. Not the kids. In fact, I think the kids are eating their share of the food and the extra that's left over because we're eating a little bit less. So we're coming out even on that. But, but just imagine in our goals that, that we're trying, Sandy and I, a few days a week to postpone consuming some calories into the afternoon and then eating the rest of the day. There is some science behind it. I won't bore you with that, but, but we're hoping it works. But just imagine, I'm not saying this has happened or could happen. But just imagine she comes into the garage and it's about 10.45 in the morning and she sees me cowering between the spring fertilizer and the rakes, chomping on a breakfast burrito that's not even thawed. And I'm just, just chawing like a, like a bunny rabbit, you know, getting some spring carrots. And, she, and, she, and, and I, and I in, in fear and trepidation and embarrassment, just say, well, well, you must not be tempted like me because you're not giving in. What a foolish thing to say. No common sense at all to that. Because in fact, the temptation as I chew on my breakfast burrito next to the drakes is, is over. I've given in. And, and her temptation is ongoing. The, the lure to give in to something she doesn't want to give in to is still there. And so I would say to you that when you say, can Jesus relate to temptation? He never gave in. I'd say to you, no one has ever experienced temptation the way that Jesus did. Because sooner or later, we give in. In fact, we give in far too often, far too early. We're, we're like, how long is a marathon? 26 miles and, I don't know, 385 yards or something. We're, we're like the guy that, that quits halfway through and looks at the guy who finishes. He ran 26 miles and 385 yards, and we ran 385 yards and quit. And look at him and say, wow, it's nice to be nice to not get tired. Give me a break. 
he pushed through the temptation to quit. And I didn't. Jesus knows temptation. And he knows it more than any of us did because he didn't give in and felt the full weight of temptation in his life. But how can Jesus, sinless, perfect Jesus, how can he relate to guilt? (laughs) Got you there, don't I? Because he didn't have guilt, like I do, because I give in. My life's filled with opportunities to confess my guilt, some small, some medium, and some large over the years. Same with you. How, How can Jesus relate to guilt? Michael Card, in his song, uh, Love Crucified Arose, says it this way. At last the time to love and die, the dark appointed day, the one forsaken moment when your father turned his face away. When God the Father turned his face away, it was because of the guilt that was laid on Jesus. In fact, I would say to you, my friends, that there is really only one other person who has ever walked this earth can exactly relate to you and the exact guilt you feel today or have felt. No one else has felt your exact guilt before except Jesus. Because on the cross, your sins and your guilt, the ones you have committed... The ones that you will commit were placed exactly those ones on Jesus. He is the only one that can say, I know exactly the weight of your guilt because I bore it long before you were born. I know the extent of your guilt because it weighed me down when the Father turned his face away. I know the ugliness and shame of your guilt because he refused to look at me for those three hours on the cross. Where does understanding this sympathizing great high priest lead us? It leads us to confidence. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. It leads us to a confidence, according to verse 4, that allows us to hold on to what we confess we believe. Let me read it again. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Confession, homologia in the Greek, is, is a conclusion embraced. Embraced by, by the collective group that, that has a belief. A conclusion, having looked at the facts that they have embraced and now are professing to others. You know, I would say is my time in this life has gone on, my time of of following Jesus has gone on, that my confidence has grown, but maybe for a rather strange reason. I think it's grown because I'm increasingly decided I or nobody else could make up such an unbelievable story. Have you heard the phrase, truth is stranger than fiction? came from a poem that Lord Byron wrote in 1823. Mark Twain had this to say about that little phrase, truth is stranger than fiction. He said, why shouldn't it be stranger than fiction? Fiction, after all, at least has to make some sense. (laughs) 
As if to say, you write a book that is so off the wall that you've made up, people are like, it's dumb, stupid. I'm not reading that. But as I think about our story that we have embraced, the conclusion that we have embraced, it is stranger than fiction. Uh, a creator creates and then he enters his creation. Uh, uh, a God comes in human form to die. Jesus, the God-man, suffers. He endures human weaknesses to grow sympathetic to his creatures. He's killed by his own creation in order to secure their life for forever. And then having dispatched his great work on earth, as Goodwin says, he hurries to heaven to take on another work on our behalf. Could the truth be any stranger or any better than that? Seize it, my friends. That's what Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews concludes. You start thinking about that kind of stuff. You just want to seize that truth and hold on. You want to confess it to others. You want to embrace it. You want to profess it whenever you have opportunity. It is truths so great you couldn't possibly make it up or consider something that was any better than that. We have confidence when we think of this sympathetic great high priest in what we believe. Only increase confidence. But we also have confidence to approach this heavenly throne of mercy and grace. What do we find when we get to that throne? What well, says it here in verse four, chapter, chapter 4, verse 18. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. It is there whether we come needing mercy for sins committed, for failings in our lives. It's there when we need grace to just help us, maybe shy of sin, but, but just weakness, as we said, that's emotional or just physically, just the fatigue of life, the weariness of, of suffering. Both are there. We have a God, according to the Scriptures, that not only is willing to receive us, but heads our direction. He did it once when he came to this earth. But he does it according to Hebrews whenever we are in need and we call out. The end of chapter 2 when it says, Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. It's such a simple word, help. It falls so short of, of what is the story behind the word here. comes from, from a word, uh, boathea, that, that has two ideas in the Greek. One is, it, it talks about boa, a, a, a cry for help, and then theo, to run. So you're running as you're crying for help? No. When you cry for help, he runs. He runs to your cry for help, it says, in chapter 2, verse 18. 
It's like picture her on the side of the playground, a young mom or her four-year-old is around the corner on the playground. He's out of sight, but he's just on the other side of, of one of those expensive, you know, contraptions your tax dollars paid with for. She's got her Starbucks coffee. She's been thinking about it all week. She's got her, her, her phone just catching up with a few friends as he's enjoying an early spring day playing. But when he falls and she instinctively hears his cry for help, the coffee gets poured out as she jumps up and it spills and her phone falls to the ground and the case cracks. She gives no thought to that because she's running to the cry for help of her own. You know, I would say that Jesus tells it even better. He told a story once about a father who runs to his son. And I'd like to just share a little video clip that might help us better understand just exactly how Jesus runs to us and welcomes us. Leave a message after the tone. Hey, Dad. It's me. Man, I know it's been a long time since we talked. I was, you know, I was kind of hoping you'd answer, but um, yeah, I understand you probably don't want to talk to me. I've just gone so far, and the things I've done, I. I just regret it, you know? And I know how bad I've hurt you and let you down, but... But, Dad, I... I miss you. I miss how we drive around and just talk about life. And I just... I just want to come home. But... I know you've probably written me off.
shared that video this past week with my good friend Rick Carmichael. He said, just show the video and sit down. <laughs> you know, this passage has helped me think about the prodigal son in a different way. That, that perhaps one of the biggest emphasis of Jesus telling that story, it is his story, he told, is, is to remind us of the welcome. To make clear the welcome. To, to, to give an example of, of an older man in that time running to his son who's coming home. Not asking questions, just running. And it says at the end of chapter 2 that, that he runs to our cry for help. You know, Martin Luther, I think, was so struck by that and thinking about temptation in our lives. In his characteristics, rather blunt way, he says, God delights in our temptations, and yet he hates them too. He delights in them when they drive us to prayer, drive us back into relationship. He hates them when they drive us to despair. When our temptations and our failings, our discouragement drives us away. God doesn't want that. That is not at all his message to us. My teenage friend needs confidence. She needs confidence to, to hold on to what she thought has always been true. That, that she is still part of the family. That her place is secure. She needs confidence also that her welcome home has never been greater. When it comes time for her to come home. I, I've been thinking about if, if I were asked, I doubt I will, but what, what do I would let her know about? What I would send to her if she needed to have that confidence reinforced? And, and I thought I could send her, her her birth certificate. This isn't it, but one like this, a birth certificate, just kind of reinforces to her that, that it still says her name and her parents' name. She's not out of the family. I, I could do that. I, I could send her, you know, there's sure some debts and some things that have had to be paid while she's been away because of her. I, 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 I printed up Colorado Statute 1321-107.5, civil damages for loss caused by theft. And I highlighted the part that says her parents have to pay. She can come home debt free. It's not on her. But I'm wondering, having read this passage, if that would be enough. Would I also tell her if it was something I knew about, that just the other day her dad was talking with a friend, and he said, the strangest thing happened this morning. I was writing yet another check to pay off things that needed to be paid off because of what she's done. And... For reasons I can't understand, as I wrote the check, I loved her more than I had before I wrote the check. It was as if my compassion in paying the price for her, making things right for her, was welling up. What I tell her that, that perhaps just the other evening, the other night, in the middle of the night, her mom thought she heard her cry out and ran down the hallway and just whimpered 
in the entrance to the door, she looked out and saw an empty bed and realized it was just in her imagination. And it took her 20 minutes to get things together enough to walk back to bed. What would I add to her confidence if she knew those things as well? I think I know what the writer of Hebrews would say. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for a sympathizing, great high priest. He has not just saved us, we learn here. He is for us each and every moment of this life. So we praise him for that. We thank him for that. And Father, I pray that we would take the actions that this passage challenges us to do. To leave more confident than ever of his greatness and the story we have chosen to embrace. And we would leave more confident than ever. He is waiting for us whenever and from wherever we turn. Thank you that he runs to our cry. And grace and mercy are the gifts he gives when we come back to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.